difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Genevieve Kosky and Tasha Robinson. Keith Phipps is out plotting a series of third act surprises, each more shocking than the last, but he'll be with us again for a future pairing. Every week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. Today, we're delving into the buried secrets of M. Night Shyamalan, the director and self-styled cult of personality whose name has become synonymous with plot twists, but who's also brought a distinctive style to mainstream filmmaking. And we're looking at Shyamalan's career through two of the films in his so-called East Rail 177 trilogy, which turn on a fateful train crash outside Philadelphia. But first, we have to answer a fundamental question. Tasha, what's a comic book? According to Merriam-Webster, it's a magazine containing sequences of comic strips, usually hyphenated in attributive use. Wait, comic strips? Like in the funny papers? I suppose, if you must. (laughs) Well, how many pages and illustrations are we talking here? There are 35 pages and 124 illustrations in the average comic book. Wow, that seems like a lot of work. Do people even buy comic books? 172,000 comics are sold in the U.S. every day, over 62,780,000 each year. Wait, are those the latest figures? No. (laughs) They're from the opening titles of M. Night Shyamalan's 2000 superhero thriller Unbreakable, the first of two films in this week's pairing. Unbreakable was Shyamalan's follow-up to his breakthrough hit The Sixth Sense, and it's another collaboration with Bruce Willis, who stars here as David Dunn, a security guard who survives a deadly train derailing unscratched and slowly discovers he has superpowers. He makes this discovery through the intervention of Elijah Price, a brittle-boned comic book collector played by Samuel L. Jackson. Nineteen years later, Shyamalan has brought Willis and Jackson back together for the new sequel, Glass, which also stars James McAvoy and the 23 personalities he played in Shyamalan's 2016 hit, Split. So this week, we'll start with the origin story that is Unbreakable. Then next week, we'll bring in Glass, the conclusion of a trilogy that's taken us deep inside the Shyamalaniverse. I'm the hero, Tasha, as always, is my arch nemesis. And Genevieve will give the light to Dennis, Patricia, or any of the 23 personalities under her control. All 25 of us will be back to discuss Unbreakable (laughs) after the break. I'll get you, Scott Tobias. And your little friend Genevieve, too. (laughs) Your train derailed. Took a curve too fast. A second train collided with yours after it derailed. The debris spread over one mile. Why are you looking at me like that? There are two reasons why I'm looking at you like this. One, because it seems you aren't the only survivor of this train wreck. And two, you don't have a scratch on you. I know what's going through your mind right now. You're searching for meaning in all of this. people died so you could finally understand the destiny for which you were born. Are you ready for the truth? During the introduction, we poked a little fun at the opening titles of M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable, which explains comic books as if very few of us realized they existed. But in Shyamalan's defense, the comic book cycle hadn't yet begun to play out. The four Batman movies that started with Michael Keaton in 1989 and ended with George Clooney in 1987 had wrapped up, we were still a couple of years away from Sam Raimi kicking off his Spider-Man trilogy with Tobey Maguire. The first X-Men movie did get released just a few months before, heralding the superhero complex to come. But comic books were still considered a niche market at the time, a subculture big enough to sell 63 million comics a year, but not the dominant culture we know it as today. And yet there's still no movie quite like Unbreakable. No one would ever characterize Shyamalan's film as a bright, zippy pop entertainment, but Unbreakable couldn't be described as dark in the same way as Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy would be years later. The tone is somber and brooding, applying the unusual pace and emotional tone of the sixth sense to another subgenre that had rarely accommodated it. Shyamalan tells the story of the reluctant hero in slow motion, wallowing in the uncertainties of a man who doesn't feel comfortable with the life he's chosen and is slow to accept the fate that's been chosen for him. 
where most superhero movies would get through the origin story in the first act and get on with the action, Unbreakable waits until the last act to send its hero on a life-saving mission, and the very, very end to introduce the arch-nemesis who's been hiding in plain sight all along. It's to the film's credit that it felt closer in spirit at the time to the slow cinema filtering into festivals from places like Taiwan than anything Hollywood was putting out. Unbreakable opens with a hero and villain on parallel tracks. The hero, literally. In a Philadelphia department store in 1961, a baby is born with multiple fractures in its arms and legs. That baby will be named Elijah and will grow into an eccentric comic book dealer played by Samuel L. Jackson, who's so sheltered he sees the world through the lens of his beloved comics and seeks to establish his place within it. Meanwhile, in the present day, a security guard named David Dunn, played by Bruce Willis, survives a train wreck that kills everyone else on board, yet leaves him walking out of the hospital without a scratch. Elijah gets in touch with David and starts to encourage him to think about why he's never been sick and why he's chosen to protect people for a living, and why he seems to have an instinct for trouble. Elijah wants David to embrace his destiny, as he has secretly embraced his own. Yet it's not the whys of Unbreakable that are affecting, it's the hows. Shyamalan isn't telling a particularly complex story here, but a basic origin myth that he slowed way down for examination. Though David has grown detached from his wife and son over the years, this opportunity to change and embrace a more consequential life is not easy for him to accept. When he does, with the help of Elijah and a son who desperately craves more from him, Unbreakable has an emotional payoff that's unlike any other superhero movie. Some of Shyamalan's ideas about comic books can be picked apart, and his ending in particular drew as much approbation as the ending of The Sixth Sense drew admiration. But the film has a strange magic, and I'm eager to sort it out with the two of you after the break. Mr. Price, can we talk about the note that you left on my car? I've studied the form of comics intimately. I spent a third of my life in a hospital bed with nothing else to do but read. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. The Egyptians drew on walls. Countries all over the world still pass on knowledge through pictorial forms. I believe comics are a form of history that someone somewhere felt or experienced. Then, of course, those experiences and that history got chewed up in the commercial machine, got jazzed up, made titillating cartoon for the sale rack. This city has seen its share of disasters. I watched the aftermath of that plane crash. I watched the carnage of the hotel fire. I watched the news waiting to hear a very specific combination of words, but they never came. Then one day I saw a news story about a train accident and I heard them. There is a sole survivor and he is miraculously unharmed. All right, so uh, Genevieve and Tasha, um, so tell me how this film played for you in the year 2000 and now, because that's a pretty, you know, that's, that's our standard question, but the landscape of comic book films has changed so dramatically in that time and Shyamalan's career has changed so much in that time. I'm curious to see if the film has changed for you in that time. Well, I I feel bad because I can't really speak to that because I did not see this movie in 2000. This is my first time seeing Unbreakable. Mm. Um, I I am not a... Shyamalan fan mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> what, what, what are they called but um no I I really Shyamalanistan? yes I'm not a Shyamalan stan <laughs> um I his films just have never really done a whole lot for me the ones I have seen I've had very little desire to revisit but I had heard that this was by most accounts easily his best film and you know was aware that it was pretty generally uh admired by people I like. So I was I was definitely curious to go into it despite my prejudices, but it's really hard to process this movie for the first time outside of where we are now in terms of comic book movies and in terms of my own comics knowledge, which I would not have had to the extent I have now really barely at all in 2000. Mm -hmm. So I feel a little bad that I can't like pick apart sort of the core question that, uh, you know, is behind this pairing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, actually, I'll I'll let Tasha speak to that before I get into what I actually thought of the movie because I think I'm I'm, I'm on pins and needles. All right. Well, Oh, here, here, I'll give you a preview. Hit me. It was fine. Oh, okay. oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. Tasha, let her rip. 
As far as comparisons go, I really disliked Unbreakable back in 2000 oh. Oh. because it came right after Sixth Sense. And to me, I remember, I have not gone back and revisited Sixth Sense. Mm. I am, I'm actively afraid to revisit Shyamalan's <laughs> movies at this point because I'm afraid of the seams in them showing. I remember Sixth Sense as such a revelation, such a surprise, such a, a distinct and interesting and innovative and just shocking film. And then Unbreakable came along. It felt like he was just trying to do the same beats over uh, Spencer Treat Clark, who plays mm-hmm. David Dunn's son, feels like he's doing his best Haley Joel Osment impression. Uh, he they even looks, look alike. He looks <laughs> very similar to him, and he's he's placed in very much the same kind of role. Bruce Willis, you know, uh, drawing on Bruce Willis to star in this movie again, just kind of felt like he was aping himself like ripping himself off Mm. and then you've got like the dour tone and the ominous Mm -hmm. music and the twist ending and it just felt to me like he was repeating himself unproductively and that was especially problematic for me because i love like reconstructions and, and deconstructions and examinations of the superhero genre this should have been a film i loved and instead i i was just struck by how much it seemed like M. Night Shyamalan was not so much a grand innovator as a person with one one trick pony hmm. that had fooled me the first time it came out. Yeah. Watching it again now, it actually plays better for me. I'm used to so many of his tricks and I'm I'm over being disappointed by him. I'm as disappointed by him as I can possibly get. So I didn't have that cliff to fall off of. Oh my gosh. That said, I like there are there are aspects of this film that play a lot stronger for me now than they did back then. Mm-hmm. I still think the ending is terrible. Just the the awful. Mr. Glass revelation specifically, or the way it's handled, the way it's directed, the the fact that the film just kind of ends there with title with card. a bunch of title cards. Title yeah. cards. The mm. beginning, similarly with the title cards. Oh my god! I feel like these exact same ideas, if if done by possibly a different filmmaker today, would be a like a brilliant, amazing film. Like deconstructing the hero motif and what it means to be a villain and what it would be like to to be a very small superhero in a world with no superheroes mm-hmm. there are a lot of ideas here that i love <laughs> it's really funny i had i had the opposite reaction to you uh, at the time with the unbreakable came out i had i did not like the sixth sense mm. and, and f- i found it to be um full of you know shock effects that i didn't like there was like a, a number of movies at the time that were all about people who are not alive making people who were alive do stuff <laughs> you know to resolve their issues it's like <laughs> just tell the kid directly what you want just stop, just stop beating around the bush if that um, guy killed me fix it yeah it's just come on uh and i and I, you know the the twist was well handled i think that was that really gave him <laughs> a career's worth of encouragement the people liking that <laughs> twist um but then i saw unbreakable and i really liked it because uh i just uh, appreciated the tone of it the formal control the look of it it was just absorbing and it, and it felt for, and it was absolutely the same way this time and I, I i it's my favorite of his movies by a pretty big margin i don't think there's i mean i like i like elements of signs and elements of the of the village but this is the one that I think you're not a lady in the water apologist. No, are you, not right? really a lady. In, I, I mean, I was I was at that point with I went to the village and things got along where it's like you know with signs in the village where the things that happen in those movies where it's like oh boy I'm gonna have to try to defend this guy. It's not gonna be and it's not gonna be easy. But but the point point at which I always defended him was style. And here there's just it's just so absorbing and the the the, the, the pace of it the the fact that he takes this entire film to really come around to who he is in this role that he's supposed to be playing uh, and then you do, don't really even get him in action until again almost the end and then when he when you do have this emotional payoff it's such a beautiful and, and surprisingly moving moment and it got me this time and it got me then when he when he's sitting at the breakfast table with his son and he just slides the newspaper over to him and the son reacts the way he does and it just it kills me it was because because it was something that kid had just wished for so long that his dad would recognize this and, and do something and he did it and he was a hero it was just such a great moment so i love it and i liked it from the beginning i like the scene on the train is so well handled to be able to to give you that 
camera perspective from behind the seats and you're shifting back and forth and that conversation. I mean, just the things like that. It's unusual. He's got an incredible style um, mm. that's kind of stayed with, with him through his career and made him compelling, even as the ideas that he is putting forward are just laughable and ridiculous. You know, I mean, the beginning of the film, the end, the, the titles are terrible i mean like the 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 thing we made fun of in the introduction i can't how could you not how could i not have made written that introduction and then and then and then the end as you say it's so abrupt and and weird and it's given you the fates of these characters like who who cares why why do we even need need that it it also just feels so like i don't know animal house you know it's 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 like freeze frames yeah it's just it's a bad trope and it's not a trope it's not a trope with any dignity to it it's a trope that we're really familiar with as like a comedic trope like a yeah. way a way to wrap up a sloppy comedy movie where there isn't really a good wrap up yeah and just being like this character went to an insane asylum feels like the punchline of an animal house uh end of film gag grafted uncomfortably onto this film i want to hear what genevieve thought about the movie mm-hmm. now but but before we move on what i do want to ask you is okay. so when you when you saw it for the first time did you feel that he was using all of these same elements again but that he'd refined them and they were better yeah. or did you not see the the parallels oh i see the parallels i mean especially as you bring them up i mean i, I did see the parallels like i said i was frustrated with it with some with the shock effects of the sixth sense and i was frustrated with the at that, that time cliched thing of like the of the ghost kind of like existing just to kind of get the living person to do things like kevin costner had something at that time where he did that there was some ghost thing with Kevin Costner. Somebody, somebody, somebody. I think that else. was the name of the movie, Ghost <laughs> Thing with Kevin Costner. Something like that. Or maybe was that was Kevin, a talk I think it was show. Kevin Costner. But it was the same kind of thing where somebody, where some, where some living person had to go on some crazy quest to find whatever it is the ghost was looking for. But, but I just thought, like, I just thought like, this was a sustained mood and tone that was beautiful. Um, uh, I liked. I think it was a perfect use of Bruce Willis's talents, uh, uh, a good use of Samuel Jackson's talents. It really gave you a great feeling of for the city of philadelphia and for the spaces within that city and i just i thought it was as well conceived and and did not it only disappoints me in, in you know very small specific ways but i but but again we should <laughs> we should table this and bring it over to genevieve yeah, for I, more I, i'm, I'm kind of sitting here making like marge simpson noises hearing you talk about how much control he has over tone and style because like honestly the, his uh, approach to tone and style are kind of what i don't like about shama like he he just has a too much gene but mm. not in a fun way most of the time like every now and then you'll get some weird sort of magic like the happening and you know <laughs> this is a very weird form of exactly we're, we're like that that too much instinct ratchets up to like fun absurdity but here it's not just brooding it is the most brooding all the time and like uh-huh. these you know stylistic flourishes that he like like if i took a shot every time there was some sort of reflection uh <laughs> framing in this movie i would have been passed out halfway through it like he just like it feels like trickery Mm -hmm. to me because he has interesting ideas like Tasha you talked about like all the you know sort of interesting ideas that could be pulled out of Unbreakable but if they feel like lightweight like there's not something grounding them so even like emotional payoff like the him sliding the newspaper across to his son which is is a very good scene and but it just I don't know I, I had had no real connection to this story up until that point I don't know, like the fact that that scene still felt so lightweight kind of mm. just highlighted to me the fact that like I'm not connecting to these characters. I'm not connecting to this story. I admire the thinking behind this story. And uh, like Tasha said, what could have been pulled out of this narrative. I just am not really a fan of how it plays out. And it just certainly doesn't change my mind on Shyamalan. I think like as far as the things I don't like about him they are less on display here than they are in his other films. So they're easier for me to overlook, but they're still there. What's what's your favorite Shyamalan movie? Even if that just means the one that's like four out of 10 instead of two out of 10. The thing is, I've never rewatched any of his movies. So like, I remember liking Sixth Sense in like 1998 or 1999, but I was also like, 15 or 16 you know so I, I i don't want to stand behind that opinion 20 years later 
but the happening was actually like I that was just such a fun movie going experience like I, I feel like he is capable of making the sorts of movies that you have an amazing experience watching with a group of people and that was kind of what was happening at our screening I felt like of, of this film like there was there was some very happy people behind me you know I'm sorry our screening of glass yes mm. um, you know I, I won't spoil my thoughts on glass but I feel like he because of this like too muchness you get a lot of really strange like laugh lines or reactions and that can be really fun um it didn't happen for me with unbreakable i don't think that's at play here so i would agree i I don't the happening is not my favorite Shyamalan movie but it is it was definitely my favorite experience Mm -hmm. watching a Shyamalan movie i have seen that film more than any other Shyamalan film because uh shortly after the critic screening of it i got a physical screener of it so i just started like gathering groups of friends and showing it to them and the the first the first time i showed a group of friends we pretty early on established that we were going to play a drinking game which was every time you can't help but ask the screen why is this happening or like any basically any question that you can't hold in you have to drink and it ended with one of my friends on the floor begging us to ask why would anybody say that line about the hot dogs or how why do they think they can outrun the wind because he, he was like i can't drink anymore i'm gonna die i feel like the problem with that movie as as ridiculous and fun as it is, is the problem with so many Shyamalan movies is that he trusts his own instincts implicitly. Mm-hmm. If you read interviews with him, he just does not understand why, like uh, critics in particular, with, when critics don't like his movies, he's just, he seems to come across with this attitude of, why are they all idiots? Like, why yeah. don't they see what a genius I am? And the fact that his movies have consistently been very cheap to make and have almost always made a profit, uh, he is held up as this kind of banner of, you know, no no matter what anybody says, they're wrong. You know, if I make a movie for a million dollars and it makes two million dollars, it is proof that I'm a genius. I think one of the reasons he's had trouble in Hollywood, like over the last decade or so, is that that's no longer an acceptable margin of profit. Mm, Now people want you to make a $100 million movie and have it make a billion dollars. It's interesting that he's hooked up with Blumhouse the last few movies, because that is a company that is rebanking on that model. Going back to that that barrier for success. But he has his instincts. And he holds so strongly to them. And, you know, as with any auteur, your ability to appreciate and fall into his movies depends on whether you like his particular tics, his particular flavor. And there's just an awful lot about the monochromaticness of mm. his oeuvre. I think I just said that. <laughs> that just the way all of his films kind of feel alike. <laughs> I kind of did. All of his films feel alike to me. Mm. except the happening and except the village which i am a, actually a very big fan of and apologist for <laughs> yeah. haven't seen that one either <laughs> oh, maybe you'll like it you, you know the twist yes i actually my my uh, boyfriend just finished ranting to me about the twist uh, oh yesterday <laughs> see the, the to me the whole thing about the village is it's it's not about the twist and i don't care if you know about the twist going in because none of that movie is really about the twist you know it's about the experience of of growing up in that place and just the series of of discoveries for the characters so i feel like that movie was just the village, so mishandled. the village is like the the village to me is like preschool uh dog tooth <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like it's like it's like, it's like, not, it's like what you kind of watch to kind of work your way up to see in dog tooth that's uh, that's all right that's hilarious because uh as a fan of that movie i bristle at that and i, I like it too you're I like exactly it too. right though okay. it's, it's 100% it is. Accurate no it's like it's like it's like, it's like for like it's like my first uh dog tooth um so. <laughs> little, little golden book of dog tooth <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to make of this whole happening discussion that we're having here. I mean, I guess it's an experience that that people like to like to sit around and and, and laugh. I, I remember seeing the critic screening with Keith, who's not here, and and, and I can't remember who. Else I think was I think us. I was there. Were you with us? I, yeah, I think we yeah, all there, we there all cut lot, out of work some, to go see. There it. was some. Uh, there was definitely some some chuckles. Though I do still defend the opening of that film as being creepy and affected. Agree. And, yeah. And then it just kind of got 
ridiculous. And then, of course, you didn't mention my favorite bit where, where, she, where the, she says, are you, you iron my, my lemon drink? drink. Why are you iron my lemon drink? <laughs> you iron my lemon drink. Um, and if we're going to talk broadly about Shyamalan, I don't want to stray too much from Unbreakable, but hey, we're just going to let the conversation flow here. <laughs> to me, he's kind of a trend hopper. You know, he's not, he, he's not somebody who's that confident in his vision as, as maybe you are asserting that he is. I think he he's trying to, to capitalize on certain popular tr- trends and he does it his way because he can't do it any other way i mean you think about like the film like the last airbender for example oh my mm-hmm. god i mean that's terrible that is terrible and, but but even like you know the visit is like okay well he's gonna do kind of a bloomberg style docu thriller you know or he's or uh, it's lady just, in the water is his attempt at uh like a big mainstream fantasy movie in the era of big mainstream yeah. fantasy and, and then of course we have this trilogy that we're talking about now where it's like, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to have my own SCU. I'm going to have the Shyamalan Cinematic Universe that I put together, and it's my own thing. And it's going to be composed of all of these elements, but which, we, which we can now look at and say, well, he, maybe he doesn't really seem to know well, and it's, it's, comic books all that well. Well, and it's so clearly a, a retrofitted trilogy. Yeah. I haven't read anything uh, specific on this, so you know, maybe Tasha, Miss Research, will have some, some sort of rebuttal. But from what I could tell, like originally Split had a different ending Mm -hmm. that it was a finite ending it ended the story there it didn't have the little stinger that sets up this trilogy and mm-hmm. like he he added that later so it was sort of a last minute oh hey this could be an expanded universe thing because expanded yeah. universes are a thing now yeah he's a trend hopper yeah shameless but that said what you're talking about is subject matter and genre mm-hmm. no matter what subject matter or genre he's using he still relies on his stylistic tricks except for except not in the last airbender and not in the visit Oh, the last Airbender does, does not exist. <laughs> oh man, I saw that. About. I saw that in 3D. It was like the worst experience I've ever had at a theater because, <laughs> like, because like the Paramount logo was spectacular in 3D, but then everything after that was like was a conversion job, and it was literally unwatchable. It was just it was blur. I, I mean, I shouldn't even say I've seen the thing, but uh, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't like it if I saw it. No, uh, that that movie but... that movie is just such a, a pile of incompetence, and it's it has <laughs> it's the like he'd forgotten how to make a movie. It has the deep misfortune of being an adaptation and abridgment of one of the greatest stories ever put to American animation, mm. and a story that had a huge fandom a huge following uh, that was very devoted to it when you have any adaptation that tries to cut an entire season of television down to two hours it's going to be mangled the story was so badly mangled even if nothing else had been a problem that would and i agree that it doesn't follow his style it's like he's trying to sort of ape the style of big budget fantasy martial arts movies and the style of the the animated series but it's it's such an anomaly in a career that is just predictably marked by the ominous tone, the heavy music, the super, super hushed, intense, whispery performances, and people who speak very stylistically in a way that people don't speak. Mm -hmm. Let me accept that premise. Unbreakable is the most complete realization of that style, though, right? I I still think it's Sixth Sense. Well, having not revisited yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I you know, I, I mean I guess we're going to have to disagree on that. But to me that's what's mesmerizing to me then and now about Unbreakable is that uh, Shyamalan's style does bring uh, this very interesting tone uh, to a genre that is that never accommodates it never i mean I'll, this is not a dark film in the way that the batman films are that or that, that some of these Zack snyder films are that's not that kind of dark it's a little more grounded in something personal and and um feeling of just not belonging to the life that you've built for yourself i mean you have this opening scene where he's where he's taking off his wedding ring <laughs> you know he's coming home in his marriage for reasons that are, is a shambles we don't necessarily know why he just is just he's just disconnected it doesn't feel right um for him to be in this entire situation to be a father to be a husband nothing nothing works for for him and he can't figure out why uh and i guess this he eventually this gives him purpose but his journey getting there is you know is slow and to me, absorbing. Ponderous. I mean, I, I, I would watch. I, I literally would watch two hours of him lifting those weights. Like, t- like yeah. I, I thought that, that whole scene is so. I do like the weights. So scene. good. Um, and um, and again, it just it plays out over 
twice as much time as you would expect uh, a scene like that to play out. I'm just picturing the two-hour version of it where he's like... <laughs> more weights. D- more and more stuff to tape on. And Scott's sitting there like mesmerized yeah. and wide-eyed while yeah. I'm like rolling on the floor because it just keeps getting... It, it would have to... It's already comedic. At the yeah. point where you're, you're taping uh, paint to your weightlifting bar like yeah. it's already comic and over the top no well here's, here's i want to loop back and talk about the ring thing because okay. i don't understand that scene in the context of the rest of the film what we're getting with the rest of the film mm-hmm. is the idea that he loved robin wright's character so much that he was willing to give up his his presumed future for her like this thing that he cared about and was good at that made him a superstar he was willing to throw it away to be with her and now something has fractured in their relationship and we're meant i think to root for them so why are we introduced to him seeing an attractive woman and immediately trying to pretend he's not married so he can mack on her well that was then this is now right i mean that was the what happened the, the you know this sacrifice that he that he made back in the day that was back in the day and in what what is the result of that is has been um unsatisfying to him Oh, sure. I mean, I get that. And I get the grief that he's living with, which I do think is the most interesting thing in the film. But are we, I assume from the way the film is put together and from the ending that we work towards, that we're supposed to have some sort of stakes in their relationship, that we're supposed to be rooting for them to get back together or at least come to some satisfying conclusion for the two of them. And when we're introduced to him cavalierly hiding the fact that he's married in order to flirt with somebody he doesn't know, what that tells me, what that introduction tells me, where his first sight of an attractive woman, his first instinct is to pretend he's not married, is that he is not committed to that relationship. He's like looking for for a quickie with a stranger. Mm -hmm. And that's perfectly fine as a way to set up a character. I just don't understand that as a setup for the character we see for the literal rest of the movie. I have two potential answers, one of which is much more generous than the other. Oh no, I didn't uh, realize we were going to <laughs> Tasha questions well, the movie and Genevieve explains No, well, this is No, this is not a, about plot. But I think like the less generous interpretation is just it's sloppy shorthand because Shaman wants to establish that his marriage is troubled before we actually get introduced to Robin Wright's character in that hospital and we see them come back together in this moment of realization that that he has survived. If I were to be a little more generous in the characterization happening here, I could also speculate that they are separated. They are not divorced, but they are in the midst of this sort of trial separation. And I think part of a trial separation for a lot of couples is like figuring out, can you be romantic with someone else? Can you date again? Is there someone else you can connect to the way you once connected to the person you've separated from? So within that context, I think him like taking off his ring, not not writing without his ring from the beginning, you know, like this wasn't a, a premeditated thing. He he takes off his ring and it's sort of like, can I still flirt? You know, I've been with the same woman since college. Can I still pick up a woman? Uh, if I were being generous to both Shyamalan and David Dunn, that's what I would speculate is happening there. You know, as soon as you started talking, I thought, well, maybe the explanation I was I was kind of expecting was that the train crash changed things for him. Mm-hmm. And that also might be a legitimate way to approach this is just that that the train changed things like the intensity of their response changed things or that coming back kind of into his own and finding something that he's good at changed things and that throughout most of the movie, he's not committed to getting back together again. I just, to me, it unbalances the film so much to see her struggling and tormented with the state of their marriage and what's to be done about it uh, when I don't feel anything like the same kind of commitment out of him or concern. I don't think it doesn't exist, though. I, I don't think it exists. I mean, I think he has to, to, to find it through a much longer process. You know, I, I mean, to go back to the, to the ring thing, I just think, I mean, you know, we complain about exposition in movies. I mean, what could be more efficient a way of of giving you a piece of information than 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 to express the fact that his marriage is not great if you, for any and he's you know by, by having him take off his ring I mean I think that's I think that's a perfectly solid purely visual way to do that yeah I don't know they just I, I mean I think that he has been resisting this destiny that has been present all along and that nothing in his life has felt right until he gets to the point in the film where he he does take action and he does 
start to come to terms with who he actually is and that's how you can kind of become satisfied and happy and i think i think that's that's a point where elijah sees things better than he does because elijah sees how these roles are supposed to be played or who's supposed to be playing these roles and he manipulates events to where to where everything is in its right place yeah it's just this weird thing where in that in that first scene like that gesture i i agree with you that it's very uh concise and that it's poignant and that it brings something across it's just to me what it brings across is that he's He's a trifling man, you know, mm-hmm. he's he's a flirt and he's deceptive and he's a bunch of things that I at least am coded to like look at that character and think, oh, well, he's kind of a dog, ain't he? Well, mm-hmm. he, he also fails at picking her up, too. So, yeah. And then tries yeah. to pretend that he wasn't, which at least he's not aggressive about yeah. it. But that also that, just goes to a place of, that, oh, no, no, I, I wasn't trying to I wasn't trying to pick you up when I tried to pick you I up. I mean, that, that's which again I think makes that, him feel deceptive that's a, and slimy. That's a, that's a face saving measure. I mean, of course, it's that, a face-saving measure. That's where I get the sort of the interpretation that it's sort of like a tentative trying out of of this behavior mm-hmm. because he is he is not good at it and he is immediately ashamed uh, that he tried it. Yeah, I think it's probably a, a good interpretation of that. What do we make of the fact that that entire scene is is taken from the point of view of like a small child who's watching all of it because yeah. i agree with you that 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 back and forth of the camera mm-hmm. and then the reverse shot so you can see that like this little girl is just sort of watching his his failed game it's showy it's it is very showy <laughs> but like what is what does that add to the scene in not just not in terms of style because we know what it adds in terms of style like narratively what's going on there uh, yeah I, I didn't really th- necessarily consider it to be a, the, that child's perspective but uh, was I supposed to? I mean, we well, see her peering between the seats. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of what I say when I like get annoyed by his style a lot of times because it feels like flash without substance. And mm-hmm. that's sort of an example because here's sort of like a look at me shot, you know, like, oh, this is unusual. And here's this this perspective and what but the it doesn't pay off in any way narratively or emotionally or character wise like it's just sort of there to show off a little well let me give you an example then of style with with substance attached mm-hmm. to it what about I'm that? not saying there's none of it but what about <laughs> that fantastic shot where he's sitting in the hospital and in, in he's in the background and in the foreground is a body Hmm. And it's and it's the last. It is we learn to be the last person who who has survived, and he's not going to survive. And you see this see the this blood sort of starting to yeah. accumulate. I mean, that is that's beautiful. The filmmaking. No, am I wrong? It's eerie. It's it's, it's so eerie good. and unsettling. And one of the things I I most enjoy about that sequence is the doctor telling him just like very quietly so nobody in the next room hears like you're about to be the last survivor of that train wreck and then you see him the shot where he comes out and into the crowd of people waiting to hear what happened to their loved ones and you know that every single one of them is about to find out that their loved ones are dead and very very faintly you hear the effect of the flat line of that last person dying. Mm. It's not overt. It's not foregrounded in any way. It doesn't happen while he's still in there. That whole sequence, the the traversing from him waking up to him looking at that crowd who he has nothing to communicate to, to him finding his family. I, I think that is an amazing piece of filmmaking. Yeah. Like um, I'm, I'm kind of skipping ahead to one of your questions here about a favorite scene, Scott, because mm-hmm. I do want to say like the, the, that hospital sequence, that whole from the doctor talking to him to the exit, Exiting the hospital, I think, is probably my favorite part of the movie. I like the first third of this movie, I think, more than the the last two thirds. Like, I I like the setup of this movie more than I like the payoff, which kind of encapsulates a lot of my feelings about Shyamalan as a whole. I think. Yeah, weightlifting for me. Weightlifting. I do like. I I do like that too. Um, It it reminds me. Our our reaction to that reminds me so much of the the Simpsons episode where where, with the soccer game and you have the two announcers and one of them's got one of them's got like holding, 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 and and the the Spanish (laughs) announcer is really excited about the same action. Anyway, um, I enjoy. I'm uh, one of my favorite directed bits in this is when David has landed on the tarp over the pool Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. he's just starting to gather himself enough to realize what's happening and you get those shots of like the tarp slowly sliding down off the edges of the pool like one by one and then just as he realizes what's going on you get that overhead shot of him trying to roll away and just 
effectively wrapping himself up in it. Yeah. I think that's a gorgeous shot. But for a full sequence, my favorite might actually be Elijah in the comic store when he's having his oh, his tremendous mm. sulk fit. Yeah. And you get that all from the perspective of this comic book store dude you know who's like midway between the simpsons comic book guy and the pimply teenager who works at every every retail place imaginable yeah who has no idea who this guy is or why he's behaving this way and it just plays out as this escalating comic sequence of jackson being kind of a jerk Mm -hmm. to a stranger for no reason except that he's mad but then it culminates in that moment of yeah a tiny little comic book related apotheosis and that suddenly he's back to being a person again i like that scene because it has that tiny comic book apotheosis as you call it without actually any dialogue about comics (laughs) (laughs) because I, I think we'll probably save this to talk about in next week's episode. But uh, dialogue is another sticking point for me when it comes I to Shyamalan. That's but, a sticking point for everybody. Uh, yeah, Shyamalan, uh, yeah. Shyamalan. Um, but but uh, to wrap this up on a positive note, like I, I think like a lot of criticisms I've I've had of Shyamalan, like it does work sometimes. And I think that uh, the speech the doctor gives is a really good example of sort of like heightened writing that's not really how a person would talk in that situation but really having a lot of payoff uh the way it's uh executed in, in the scene so it's it's not always bad but it's bad a lot of the time yeah, yeah <laughs> i think when it's visual when he kind of just sticks with the visual that's gonna work out i mean i think the whole sequence where elijah chases after the guy with with the gun or who he thinks who uh, he suspects has the gun i mean that's very well handled and 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 you just obviously are filled with dread because you know he's just going to shatter every single bone in his body. Man, who knew that stairs were going to be the scariest thing in this movie? <laughs> it's really well handled. And the the whole process of like watching his feet start more and more to skip as he tries to hurry. And mm. you, mm-hmm. you can feel everything leading up to the moment that he falls. I've seen this movie before. I knew what was going to happen. My heart was still in my throat the entire time. And then on the impact itself is so well handled. It's a really visceral sequence. And one more thing about that sequence too, and this is telling of that character is that the revelation that he gets out of it anyway, the thing that he, the question that he needs answered is more important than anything else that happens to them at him in that sequence. The, the thing that he has to know is wor- seems to be worth it to him to completely destroy his body to find out. Well, I know we have to wrap up, but we also have to at least touch on Samuel L. Jackson's performance here. We're going to talk about it in the next episode. We're going to talk about both of their performances, I think, because there's a contrast between how they played these characters 20 years apart. But this was an era, I think, of subtlety for Samuel L. Jackson that he's kind of lost as he's become an icon. And the subtlety of the satisfaction drifting across his face as he's he's broken and in agony and passing out, but he gets that little glimpse of the thing that he came for. I love him as a performer, especially yeah. during this era. There were so many roles that he had that are just so out of the ballpark amazing. And I really love his performance here a lot. It was interesting for me to watch his performance uh, in light of uh, his performance as Nick Fury, because mm-hmm. like the, the characters aren't exactly analogous, but they do serve a somewhat similar function and sort of like bringing something into the light for our heroes, you know, or, or like directing them in a, in a particular way. He's a curator in, in both things. Sure. He's a curator yeah. of superheroes. Yeah. But he, the his performance here, there's like a simmering anger beneath it that I, I think if the revelation about uh, Mr. Glasses in, intended to be a twist, which I, I gather it was, it never felt that way to me because like he, he feels villainous from the beginning. He feels sad, but I feel like anger overpowers that in that performance. It's a very like sort of seething performance to me. And I, and I agree, it's very good. Yeah, no, he's he's good. He's good. But and we'll discuss this when we do Glass. That that character's arc is realized <laughs> at the end of this movie, <laughs> and then we see him again <laughs> nineteen years later. So we will touch on that when it's time. Until then, uh, we'll stop here and uh, come back with feedback. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We have a couple of emails left over from 2018 when we recorded our last podcast, so let's clear the docket. Genevieve, you first. 
We paired the favorite Mean Girls, but a listener weighed in with another suggestion. Sure. Uh, Magnus writes in, I loved your pairing of the favorite and Mean Girls, but once everyone started discussing other contenders for that week's episode, like the Draftsman's Contract, Dangerous Liaisons, and All About Eve, it got me thinking that there was one more possible comparison to Lanthimos' newest feature. I was quite surprised to not hear even a passing mention of Sofia Coppola's 2006 film Marie Antoinette. Yes, I know it's pretty hit or miss for most, but on paper, Coppola's third feature has some uncanny similarities to the favorite. Both are historical dark comedies centered around women in power. Both are lavish productions with an eye for period-appropriate details, and both take a more relatable yet highly stylized approach with a viciously mean script by their art house slash independent directors. Coppola and Lanthimos are working in the same niche genre here, at least, but with completely different outcomes. So at this point, I'd just like to know if it even came up in discussion when planning out those episodes, because I find it hard to believe that Lanthimos and casting come across Coppola's ahead of its time take, even if it was just an afterthought. I think that the similarities grow to an even more staggering degree the closer you look. Both boast palace intrigue littered with affairs, a distinct visual style, main characters who work their way up the hierarchy only to find their ascension cut short by unpopular wars. But I'm sure you have your reasons for leaving out this odd little macaroon of a film. <laughs> it didn't come up in discussion, but it definitely came up in my mind while watching The Favorite. And I, I actually love Marie Antoinette a lot. That's probably my top three uh, Sofia Coppola films. Yeah. So I, I honestly don't know. I, I feel like I, people really like it now. At the time, there was, it definitely got questioned, but but I like it's, it it's hard to run. In, uh, hard to run <laughs> yeah. into folks who don't don't who, who aren't digging uh, Marie Antoinette these days. Yeah, I feel like it would have been an interesting thing to go back and revisit. I remember not caring for it much at the time, thinking that it felt very featherweight. But I love this letter. I love this suggestion. I think it would have been a really interesting pairing because Marie Antoinette is also fundamentally about somebody struggling with the hermetic feeling of a life at court yeah. and the the inescapable obligations and just the, the feeling of being buried under the weight of expectation. And I feel like she comes from a, a, very much the opposite perspective. Uh, so the, yeah, the two of them narratively would have been really interesting to to compare. And of course, they're both, you know, all about the the lush visuals mm-hmm. of life at court as well. And, and they both have little touches of like anachronistic flair. Uh, in in the favorite, you have that amazing dance sequence. Of, you know, <laughs> a very not seventeenth century dance moves. And then in Marie Antoinette, there there's a few little ones, but the one I can picture in my head is the purple. Chucks uh, dancing, uh, you know, and of course the soundtrack. And yeah. there's so it definitely would have been a good comparison. And I could have, uh, you know, gone to bat for for a film I, I like a lot, but I don't know. I guess, just... I guess it, it would be old enough to, I mean, given that we've done Mean Girls and yeah. I mean, it would be old enough to be quote classic status. I, I we've definitely to... been doing a lot of recent classics lately. Yeah, so. we have. <laughs> I, we have. I, I mean, I, I tend to drift a little earlier in my mind with a lot of these things but we have been doing a lot of recent things yeah i mean it's always nice to be able to go back like significantly further but a lot of these pairings are heavily informed by things that the filmmaker themselves says were big influences Mm -hmm. and the fact that rachel weiss brought up mean girls and and specifically said this is that film uh just made it such a an irresistible pairing we definitely thought about a bunch of other ones yeah. but uh, you know the the sad fact of all of these uh pairings is we we got to pick one all about you would have been great though if we did yeah. that I, all I, of these would have been great draftsman's contract should we just start great. a new podcast it's pairing the favorite with different movies every week <laughs> <laughs> the favorite your favorite your new favorite connections. podcast we just, and now it's more connections with the favorite that's see that's what we need to do with our we've we've been debating for quite a while now uh putting together a patreon and it was always like what would we possibly do for patron content it's just going to be the favorite podcasts <laughs> just every week a new favorite pairing we'd be swimming in too much money if we got that <laughs> it that. would be really exhausting carrying those giant bags of gold coins to the bank every week having to fight off the super villains for them uh wow okay so well this uh second and last email is from paul in denver who talks about the late stan lee's presence in both spider-man 2 and spider-man into the spider-verse tasha paul writes 
I wanted to comment on a connection I thought you were going to make, and that is Stanley's cameo in both films. In Spider-Man 2, it was a blink-and-you'll-miss-it scene of him pulling a woman back from some falling rubble. A great wink and nod to those who caught it, and probably more esoteric at the time without the proper social media channels to perpetuate it. Compare that to Spider-Verses, which is what we've come to know, love, and expect from every modern Marvel movie, a short scene with dialogue that's always a crowd-pleaser. The cameo is made even more poignant if you watch Spider-Verse anytime between when it came out and Captain Marvel in March, in that it's the first cameo since Stan Lee's death, and one of the last ones ever, depending on how many they managed to film in advance. I assume they got the ones for the three MCU movies slated for 2019 release, but all the other Marvel films may not have accounted for it. What did you guys think about how that one element's evolved over the years, from subtle Easter egg to mandated component? Will future films lack that little bit of magic without it? Will there be some distasteful attempt to recreate him in CGI to placate the fans? Could it usher in the next era of MCU films that don't feel beholden to this one element? Maybe producers will shed some of the other genre conventions and formulas that the committee checks off during the writing phase. That is a lot of heavy lifting for a uh, for Stanley cameo. I yeah. I don't think that they're going to try to recreate him in CGI. Oh my god! Because it well it's it'll be so much, such a bad idea. Fan fan backlash against that kind of thing has been so strong. I think mm-hmm. studios are are definitely in a place of you know we we don't we don't want to be examined that much about this kind of thing. And I don't think that losing it is going to cause some kind of seismic shift in the MCU. It's interesting to think how future animated Marvel movies, like presumably any follow-ups to Into the Spider-Verse, could continue to like integrate his presence, if not necessarily his voice, or maybe like could use older audio or, or something. But in terms of the live action, uh, as this letter says, it's probably done after after 2019. And, you know... Yeah. I'm not going to miss it nope, that that much. I mean, it, I, I find the Stan Lee cameos can be very hit or miss. And I agree that the one in Spider-Man 2 is, it's kind of cute, it, you yeah. know, in comparison, like just how not self-conscious it is about itself. You know, it, it truly is an Easter egg and they have become not that over time. Yes, so. I, I agree. It, it, should, it should have been much more like Albert Hitchcock's appearances in his own movies than you know this than an actual part that takes you out of the film um just to say hey there's stan lee it depends on how far out like i i actually really enjoy his cameo in thor ragnarok as the the scary hair cutter with the giant spinning blades (laughs) because one of the things that the cameos started giving you was just kind of an idea like all of these films tend to be about uh young buff healthy superheroes and supervillains and everybody else in the world is kind of you know uh, victims and, and bystanders and stanley's cameos just kind kind of kept giving you a vision of like where in this world where in this gigantic multiverse do like crotchety old men fit and it kept coming up with like new professions for him to have that seemed always very marginal and on the edges but i just found it kind of a fun running gag to see him as a truck driver or you know the the batman 60s style neighbor leaning out of window or just you know whatever job they they had to give him to wedge him into the movie well r.i.p anyway (laughs) we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations so we can feature your response in a future episode or post it on facebook for discussion to reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll jump ahead to the present day and the reunion of Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson 19 years later in Glass. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, keep adding those weights to the bar. You may be swoller than you think. Anytime.